Well, we're coming back this morning to a further discussion of Isaiah chapter 40. So last week, we really talked about the fact that what we're, that what we're seeing through a variety of amazing pictures is the inexpressibly glorious God whose greatness is truly unimaginable. So Isaiah gives us a series of pictures by which we begin to comprehend a little bit about him. Really, uh, according to Job, in one sense, these are, do you remember what they're called? The edges of his ways or the whisper of God, right? So really, these huge pictures of the greatness of God are really just like hearing a whisper about the greatness of who he really is, which is, when you stop to think about it, pretty amazing. So if, in fact, God is the one who's inexpressibility is featured in such things as being able to measure the waters in the palm of his hand. Remember we talked last week just for a brief uh, few minutes about the Pacific Ocean alone. Anyone remember how many gallons, about how many gallons are in the Pacific Ocean alone? Lots, yes. <laughs> who, know, who, who counts gallons in oceans? I don't know. But, uh, but they say, they say that in the Pacific Ocean alone, there are about 187 quintillion gallons. Um, that's a number that almost is like, huh? What, is, what does that even mean, right? But that's the greatness of our God, that he, in one sense, by an anthropomorphism, you'll remember we talked about last week, these pictures of God, that it is as though he can measure all the waters of all the world. The Pacific is just one of those oceans, in the palm of his hand. He's inexpressibly great. His magnificence is truly manifested in the fact that he not only can do all these things, but that he rules over all. Remember what he does to princes? He blows on them, and they go away. There is no standing against this magnificent God. He is truly invincible. He's higher than our highest thought. He is bigger than our biggest problem. He's greater than our greatest need. He is the Almighty God. That's the message of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 through about verse 26. This is a great God that we serve. We just sang the song, Behold Our God. When we stop to think about who we're really beholding, who we're really considering, who we're really looking at, it should inspire in us a variety of things. One of them would be worship, though, and another would be fear. Because we fear so great a God, not fear like we're afraid that he might judge us, because we know from Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Then this God is not one that you fear for condemnation, but we fear him because of his incredible greatness and his unspeakable majesty. He truly is higher than our highest possible imaginations. But this morning, we come to what does all that greatness mean to me? And we're looking at two verses from Isaiah chapter 40. But before we look there, I'd like for us to bow in prayer and ask that this great God, who is so unspeakably, unimaginably beyond our highest thoughts, would actually come right here, right here, this morning, right to First Baptist, and speak to us by his Holy Spirit. Do you think he can do that this morning? Yeah, he can. He's that great. He's that great that he can actually come here this morning. And let's invite him. Heavenly Father, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come right here to speak to us. Not even just to speak to us as a group, that's important. We do ask you to do that. But to speak to us individually, because you're great enough to speak to all your people individually at the same time. So speak to us, we pray, by 
your words from Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. So this morning, we're taking a look at a great tension that has been built up in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, as we're hearing about the greatness of God. And in order to help you understand that, I want to tell you a little story that happened when I was so young that I don't actually remember it, but I've heard the story from my dad, who tells me about it, and I was a part of the story. So I don't exactly know why, but for some reason my dad was moving a piano, and the vehicle that we had with which to move the piano was an old 1960-something Plymouth Valiant. Some of you might remember those. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got it. It had positive traction. My dad really liked that, and uh, it had a manual uh, transmission. He really liked that, but, um, and I think it may still, still sit at the top of my parents' property in Penryn, California, where he can't bear to get rid of it. But in any case, we had this Plymouth Valiant, and it was running at the time, which it is not now, and he had a home-built trailer behind, and that's how we were moving the piano. So uh, you, you know about how that goes, huh? <laughs> okay, known to fail, all right. So, so we were traveling with a piano in the back, and I was a little kid in the back seat, bench seat in the back, and this was, uh, and, and for some reason, I guess my dad got it loaded wrong. And so pianos are heavy, and when we came to some kind of a pavement transition, in my mind, I think about it being coming up over a, an overpass for a freeway, something went wrong in the way that the load was working with the vehicle. And I think that the trailer was probably lifting up on the back of the car. And so you know what happened next, right? The car and trailer start jackknifing and going sideways. And my dad's correcting. It's going back the other way. And I was rolling back and forth like a pea in the back of the a car that was before seatbelt laws, right? So, um, so I don't know what exactly happened or what went through my little boy mind. But this is what I know. My dad tells me. Of course, my dad probably glued with fear the steering wheel probably white-knuckled and trying to recover from what he just managed to escape, uh, slamming into either side of the road or running into anybody. And he hears a little voice from the back, my little voice, saying, You're a mean daddy. <laughs> I made several wrong assumptions at about that moment. I, I assumed that my dad was in complete control. That's one of the things that I assumed that was just not true. I assumed that he was in complete control, and my dad wasn't in complete control. I also assumed that my dad didn't understand, that he was just doing this to get his little boy in the back seat. And I assumed that perhaps my dad actually intended my distress. And you know, while, while that's a really funny little old picture of what happens between a dad and his boy sometimes, I think we sometimes think about God that way. In fact, look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, and beginning here, in verse 27, because you'll hear this tension taking place between the people of Israel and their God. Now remember, who has just been described in all the verses before? God, the unthinkably great God, whose majesty is over all, who blows on the princes and makes them nothing. That's this God, and now the people say, listen to what they say. Verse 27, chapter 40, Why do you say, O Jacob... And speak, O Israel, listen to what they say, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
Do you feel the tension? They've just heard all about a God who is inexplicably great. Through picture after picture, Isaiah has painted some of the edges of the ways of God, just the outskirts of who he really is. And then they say. So that apparently leaves us with this really big question. Why then are we suffering? If God's really that big, then then I have some issues I've got to deal with. Either God does not see my circumstances, or God doesn't care about my suffering. Listen to it again. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? God doesn't see. My way is hidden from the Lord. He doesn't see what's going on with me. Yeah, he must be really great, but maybe he's so great. In fact, remember, it says that he's so great, verse 22, he sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Okay, I mean, how much attention do you pay to grasshoppers? Not so much, right? I mean, they kind of flutter off as you walk through the path, but do you pay a lot of attention to grasshoppers? Not so much. Not so much. Well, maybe it's because God just doesn't see. So I'm experiencing suffering. I'm anticipating trouble on the basis of the fact that God just doesn't see. Or... Possibly, it it goes on to say that my right is disregarded by God, so he doesn't care. He knows what's just. He knows what's right and true, but I guess he doesn't care when it comes down to someone as small as me. So, Isaiah addresses the problem. But the address to this problem this morning actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. So in order to get the answer that we're looking for to understand what is actually taking place here at the end of I, toward the end of Isaiah, we need to go back to the very beginning and ask something about the context of this passage and why would they even say such a thing when it comes to a great description of God and thinking somehow that they have been overlooked by him. So look back with me to verse 1 of chapter 40. Because in it, God makes some amazing statements. This is what it says in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, if you step back into the previous chapters, you'll find something really astonishing by way of contrast. Let me describe it for you. The book of Isaiah as a whole is what kind of a category of biblical literature would we call it? Prophecy, right? Yeah, it's prophecy. So it's telling in large measure about things that are already done. No, it's telling about things that are yet to come, right? So this is telling about things that are yet to come. By the way, is it an accurate prophecy? Yes, in every detail, in every single detail, and much of what Isaiah prophesied came to pass already, and we can look at it and examine the fact that it matches up exactly. History matches the prophecy. God is great. God is really great, and he knows what is going to happen and conducts all the affairs of the future as well as the present. So, as a book of prophecy, we would look at it and say we, we anticipate that there would be a lot of prophetic pieces to this, But, interestingly enough, the immediately preceding chapters, right before Isaiah 40, are not mostly prophetic. It's a really interesting middle section of the book, and in it, instead of out-and-out prophecy, you find 
a story. And it's the story of one of the great kings of the nation of Judah. The story of the king Hezekiah. Hezekiah had come to the throne and had done many great things for the people of Israel. In fact, it's actually attributed to Hezekiah that we have portions of the book of Proverbs. He assembled them. And two of the five, they call them books, in the, in the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms is divided into five books. And two of those were assembled by Hezekiah, they believe. He was a godly king. He did a lot of great things. And we see that in Isaiah's view of who Hezekiah was here in the immediately preceding chapters just before Isaiah 40. So we have the story of Hezekiah in two other books, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We find other things about Hezekiah, but this is like looking in at the life of Hezekiah from the perspective of Isaiah the prophet, who was vitally involved because he was there with Hezekiah in several of the major events of Hezekiah's life. So the first event that's told about in Isaiah that regards Hezekiah is the attempted Assyrian invasion. So the Assyrians came down to attack the people of Israel, uh, the people of Judah, to be specific, and had come against Jerusalem. And it looked pretty hopeless. There were a lot of them. And it was a bad situation. And so, uh, you'll remember there was the Rabshakeh who came and shouted the words of terror to the people. And they said, don't, don't, don't speak those words so that all the people can hear. Speak to us in, in another tongue because... And they said, we want the people to hear. We want the people to understand the devastation that's about to come upon them through our Assyrian horde. And so Isaiah did the only thing he could do. He did the right thing. And he took the letter of the words of the king of Assyria and he spread it out before the Lord and he pled for God's intervention. And you know what? God intervened. He did exactly according to the prayer of Hezekiah. In fact, God himself went out into the camp of the Assyrians and he killed, get this, 185,000 Assyrians. And you know what they did? They went home. That's the first of three stories that precede Isaiah chapter 40. Again, it's an amazing testimony to the greatness and magnificence of God, right? Here's a God who can step in and he intervenes in personal human affairs. He intervenes in the nations and in the judgments of the peoples. In fact, isn't that a great illustration of blowing on the princes? He just took care of the problem. It was done. The second story that's told in Isaiah, right before Isaiah chapter 40, is the story of Hezekiah getting very, very sick. So again, we've, we've had Isaiah facing the enemies of God and God coming through in triumph. We have here the fact that Isaiah, like any of us, gets very sick. In this case, it was a sickness that Isaiah the prophet told him is going to be a sickness to death. Isaiah, or, uh, Hezekiah said, oh God, remember the things that I've done for you. Don't, you. don't you remember how I have done the right things for you? And without telling the whole story, you may remember that before Isaiah, who had just told him you're going to die, got past the courtyard leaving the palace. God said, go back and tell him that he's going to live. So Isaiah did that, and they applied a cake of figs to the sore, and Hezekiah lived. Another amazing answer to prayer. We could discuss that one. There's a lot to be said about that particular illustration in Hezekiah's life, but that's immediately preceding Isaiah 40, except for one final story. 
And unfortunately, it's a story that has a lot of sadness in it for the people of Judah. The first two are stories of triumph. The stories of God, the king of the universe, marching in perfect control over all the things he's made. The third is too, but it comes through a man's failure, through Hezekiah's failure. The third story is the story of when the Babylonians sent ambassadors to talk to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, you remember what he did? He showed them everything that he had. So Isaiah comes and says, um, hey, Hezekiah, um, what have you shown him? And he said, everything, right? So listen to what happens. This is in Isaiah 39. And it's right before what we're hearing presently. And the, he says in verse Five, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, who you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Bad news for the people of God. I, I, I mean, really bad news. This is, this is like saying, hey, America is going to be defeated, and all of us are going into captivity. And it's a really bad captivity, not a pleasant thing. And it's going to happen. This is what God says. <sighs> um, I think we're going we're gonna to have some issues if I hear that. I'm going to feel some, some problem about, <sighs> really? Listen to what Hezekiah says. Verse 8, chapter 39, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, listen carefully, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is what? It's, hold on, really? Is it really good? Well, it's God's word, it's good in that regard, but is it a good word? It's a terrible word. It's horrible. But listen to Isaiah, Hezekiah's reasoning behind it. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. This godly king, who's experienced the power of God firsthand, who knows that he serves the king of kings, who rules over the nations, who blows on the princes, and they vanish. He said, it's really just about me. If it's okay for me, we're okay. I guess that my sons and my daughters and my people to come will just have to deal with it. In other words, Hezekiah says, I really don't care. I think that's what he's saying. I really don't care. And so we find that in the opening verses of Isaiah 40, God says, your king may not care, but I do. I do care. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Your king may not care about what's coming for you, but I do care. There is a good end, God is saying, for the people of God. God, looking out past the Babylonian captivity, which would in fact come. There was no rescinding it. God did not offer in Isaiah 40 a second chance. Oh, guys, come on. We'll try it again. We'll work on this. and we can. No, 
there was no second chance, it was coming. Judgment was on the track, it would arrive right on time. Right on time. But what God does say is in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your difficulties, I care for you. There's a good end, a good end through the suffering for the people of God. And then he goes on to say something else. In verse 3 and 4 and 5, God says, I prepare. Listen to what he says. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You ever heard those words before? They're somewhere else, aren't they? Where else are these words found in the Bible? The book of John, where else? Where is it? In a, we hear it in songs. Okay, there's other places. There are three other places where it's found. It's the book of John. Mark and Luke. And oh, there's one more, guys. Matthew. Every single one of the Gospels announces this very statement. Every single one of them. Now, that's interesting because many times we find that the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say something that John omits. Not in this case. Every single one of the Gospels, all four, announce this particular statement from Isaiah chapter 40. You think it's important to God? P pretty important to God. So he is announcing that I prepare a way. Now, you know who this is referencing in the New Testament, right? Who is this referencing in the New Testament when we get over to the application that God has for the Lord Jesus Christ and for us? He, he's talking about, well, we see the Lord Jesus, absolutely, we see John the Baptist, right? He is the voice crying in the wilderness, and that's what we hear in the Gospels. He, John the Baptist, uh, is the voice crying in the wilderness, make ready the way for God. And the one who's coming, the one whose way is being made ready, is the Lord Jesus, whose sandals, John said, I'm not worthy to unlatch. I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals, which was a dirty job, by the way. But John said, even such a lowly job is too high for me when it comes to my God. Oh, you know, I think he caught an idea of who this God is that was coming onto the scene. God says, I prepare, so remove every obstacle. Repent, ready yourselves for the coming kingdom. The time of estrangement and suffering will come to an end, and God will march in judgment. Yes, the Savior will appear. There is a savior. It's interesting that in Luke, uh, in his account of Isaiah chapter 40, announcing the announcer, John the Baptist, and preparing for the way of the Lord Jesus to come, he came in a very, very powerful way. The words used to describe the preparation of God are baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, it was a baptism for repentance, and John announces bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he gives the people specific things that they must do to prepare their hearts like a way for God, like a straight path down which the Savior can then appear on. So God says, I care. And he also says, I prepare. He goes on in verses 6 through 8 to say, I endure. Listen to the verses, verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You find these verses too in the New Testament. Particularly you find it in 1 Peter and an allusion to it in James chapter 1. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. That tells us two things. If I, were, if I were one of the people who was hearing this for the first time as Isaiah announces it, to people who are anticipating coming devastation, it tells me two things. Number one, God is still going to do what he said he'd do. The judgment is on track, and it will arrive right on time. But it tells me something else. It tells me that all that God has said, he will keep. He will do according to his promise, and that, though God, that God has spoken, and his word will stand. That includes, we just sang, standing on the promises, right? Are those promises real and true? Are they viable? God says, though everything else and everyone else fades away to nothing, my word will stand. God has spoken. His word will stand. Stand. And then it goes on to one more section here in the preparation for the section we looked at last week, and, and that is verses 9 through 10. In verses 9 through 10, listen to what it says. God, speaking through Isaiah, says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God says, I come. I come. To his suffering people, God, come like a triumphant army. As I prepared this message, my mind went back to a passage you're probably familiar with in 2 Kings. In chapter 6, you'll remember that there was another time when the people of God, in this case the people of the northern kingdom, the, tri the nation of Israel, were confronted with a great army. It was the Syrian army. And, and there had been some problems going on in the Syrian army because a prophet by the name of Elisha was telling the king of Israel everything that was yet going to happen so that they didn't have problems with the Assyrians who wanted to take them out. And so the king of Syria was like, so who's for the enemy here? And they said, well, actually, it's the prophet who's in Dothan right now, Elisha, God's man. And he's telling the king of Israel everything that you say in your bedroom. So um, you probably better take them out. So he did do exactly that. He got his army together, and they marched to Dothan and surrounded Dothan for the sake of one man. They were just looking for one man. It was a manhunt with a whole army to make it happen. Do you remember what happened next? The servant of the prophet, Elisha, looks out and he goes, oh no, we have a big problem. There's a whole army here. What are we going to do? And Elisha said, don't understand. You don't understand. Let me pray for you. And he prayed, Lord, would you open his eyes? You remember what he saw? Yeah, what did he see? There was an army, and it was a fearful army, but there was a bigger and better army. It was horses and chariots of fire. And there were more of them than there were the Syrians. 
So God says, I will come. I will do justice. I will do what is right for my people. I will come. And he comes to rule in justice. He comes to rule in justice. He will make right the wrongs in his time. God says one more thing. And it's one of the most beautiful parts, really, of Isaiah chapter 40. And it's found in verse 11. (sighs) Listen to what he says. He, this God, whose arm will rule for him, who triumphs, triumphs in justice, who rules over the nations. Listen to what he does to you. He, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now you heard last week the kind of hands that God has. He's indescribably great. And with those arms, those hands, he carries his people. I think of Psalm chapter 23 here, but Psalm 23 with a twist. In Psalm 23, we hear of God leading his people all the way home. But here we don't just hear of God leading. We hear that he, he does what? He, he carries his people home. With such a God, with such arms about us, can we go wrong? There are echoes of this in Exodus when God led his people once before from a foreign land. In this case, the land of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 1, we hear God saying, The Lord your God, Moses speaking here, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. What did God do for his people? He's already done it. He carried them. And now he promises again, though you go to captivity, though Babylon is a real thing and you are going to go, I want you to know something. I'll carry you. I will be with you. With tender mercy, God will shepherd his people. Now take a deep breath. You've heard essentially a description of how this great God interacts with his people. And I want to show it to you in a single paragraph. Do you think we can get all those verses into a single paragraph? We're going to try. Here it goes. Here it goes. Adding all these verses together, verses 1 through 11, this is what it says. I care. There is a good end for the people of God through the Savior. God has spoken, and his word will stand He will come to rule in justice and with tender mercy will shepherd his people. That's Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. There is a good end for the people of God through the Savior. God has spoken and his word will stand. He will come to rule in justice and with tender mercy will shepherd his people because he cares, he prepares, he endures, he comes and he carries. But I've got a challenge here. 
I think we can get that whole paragraph down to one word. One word. You think we can do it? There's one word. Maybe you've got the word. Anyone have the word here? What's the word that would describe all that we just said here? All that it takes 11 verses to say. Almighty, we're talking about that in verses 12 to 26, so there's, that's an important word, and almighty is another word we're going to capture toward the end here. Love, he's loved definitely. Anyone else? Salvation. There's one word that I suggest might catch it all. Here we go. Ready? He's Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So what we're talking about here is that we have the almighty God who made heaven and earth, the one who holds the world, who calls the stars out by name. Yep, all the stars by name. He calls them out. This God says, I am with you. It's in fact in Isaiah chapter 7 that we hear the first announcement of the name Emmanuel. It's right in this book. In Isaiah chapter 7. And there was another time, another difficulty and there was a sign given. The king, Ahaz, wouldn't ask for a sign. So Isaiah said, God said through Isaiah, I will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. You'll call his name Emmanuel. You'll remember that that's not the only time in the Bible that that name has been used. That was the name for a particular little boy who was born to the prophet Isaiah. But it's the name of someone else. Who isn't just a foreshadowing of a God who is with his people, but who is God with his people. Because this was ascribed to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus himself, she, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins Matthew 1 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God. This is Jesus, who is with us in every trial. He's with us in every joy. He's with us in every experience of life. When the people looked to their own horizons, they saw ominous clouds of a gathering storm. The future looked really, really dark. You're going to go in captivity to Babylon. But when they looked at God, they saw the Almighty God, who's not just a dispassionate, disconnected God who rules and looks at his people like grasshoppers, ever so many of them, and all hopping in every direction, but who looks at you, who looks at me, who knows our troubles, our distresses, our discouragements, our needs. And God comforts us with all the energy of divine power and all the certainty of divine love wrapped up in that one name, God with us. Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, God is with us. Emmanuel, he is with us. He cares, he prepares, he makes a way, and he comes. And having come, he carries. God is with us. God says to his people, comforting them, I am God. There is nothing that is beyond the scope of my power. I'm bigger than your biggest problems. We saw that last week. But he says, too, I am Emmanuel. There is no one closer than I am in your trouble. I am not disconnected from your suffering, but I am present with you in your suffering. I know. In fact, it's with those words, I know, 
that were carried way back to Exodus again to another time when the people were suffering in bondage, to a people in the time when the people were suffering in bondage un under the cruel hand of Egyptian taskmasters. And we hear these words at the conclusion of Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, guess what the next words are, and God knew. God knew. God didn't just know like some dispassionate judge far away looking at a bunch of grasshoppers. God knew with the awareness of the almighty God who is in perfect control of all that takes place and who cares for his people. So we come to that verse that we're looking at here in Isaiah 40 and verse 27, and we read it again. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Is our way hidden? No, no. God knows, and his knowledge is not the dispassionate interest, uh, but active involvement he is with his people to deliver. God does see your circumstances. He knows. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, things that nobody else knows, things that nobody else could even imagine about you, God knows. And is my right disregarded by my God? No. God knows and his knowledge is not just disassociated from his character of truth and righteousness. God does not side with injustice. He doesn't side with injustice. Will his people be delivered to an unjust nation? Yes, but God does not side with injustice. In fact, you find in the Bible that those whom God uses to judge his people are themselves judged. That's our God. Our way is not hidden from him. Our right is not disregarded by him. In fact, later in the book of Isaiah, you find an amazing and very beautiful testimony to this greatness of God combined with his personal presence in Isaiah 63, verse 9. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 63, verse 9, it says this. In all their, his people's, affliction, he was afflicted. What? Let me read it to you one more time. In all their affliction, in all God's people's affliction, he, God, was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is not the kind of affliction which reduces the irreducible joy and satisfaction that are inherent to the person of God. He's never reduced. There's no way to take verses 20 or 12 through 20. 4, 25, 26, and make it something, make God something less than he is. So he's not talking about being reduced. Instead, he's talking about the kind of a union between God and his people, which demonstrates his inseparable love and care. Think about it. The God of all the universe is inseparably bound to you. In your need. In your need. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. It's the seamless union, really, of God's almighty power 
to his infinite care. And that alone can answer the questions of people who suffer. In fact, it's the name Emmanuel that announces in a single word the final answer to our fears that either God doesn't know and see my circumstance or he really doesn't care. He is superior to all. That's raw power. But he is imminent. He's close. He's near to his people. That's that raw power of invincibility applied to my need. Makes me think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Into the fiery furnace. Did they lack trouble? Sounds like trouble to me. I don't want to be in the fiery furnace. But was God there? Yes, he was. There was a fourth man in the fire. It makes me think of Psalm 139, one of David's most famous psalms. How intimately does God know us? He knows our actions before we do them. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our words before we speak them. Um, That's pretty intimate knowledge. It's more intimate than you have of yourself. It's more intimate than I know about me. I don't know what I'm going to say next. God knows. God knows. He not only knows what I'm going to say next, he knows what I'm going to think next. God knows. He's intimately acquainted with me. But there's something even more amazing in Psalm 139, verses 17 through 18. Look at this. Psalm 139, 17 and 18. Listen to what it says in, ver- in these two verses. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I went out to Cherry Point the other night trying to find sand and the tide was in. So that's the best I can do, folks. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a handful of gravel. But did you know how many grains of sand are in a typical handful? 400,000. That's in a handful. Okay, what did David say here again? Let's read it. If I would count these thoughts that you have, O God, toward me, they are more than the sand. Than the sand in a handful? He's got about 400,000 thoughts towards you. Is that right? No. All the sand. How much sand is there in the world? Okay, big number time. Here we go. All the sand in the world. Seven quintillion, five quadrillion. Who counts these things? But anyway, here we are. All the sand in the world, they say, is about seven quintillion, five quadrillion. That's what it looks like spelled out in, in, uh, in numerical form. That's a lot of zeros. I checked it multiple times because there's probably some of you who are going to cross-check me on it. I'm pretty sure I got it right. There's a lot of zeros in that. All the sand in the world. But that doesn't mean much to me. What what does that really add up to? Uh, We find out for comparison our national debt is that number, 20 trillion, approximately. 20 trillion. Pretty big number, right? There's a lot of zeros after that. But did you know? And and it is a big number. In fact, uh, it's so big a number, 20 trillion, that if you, the, the world's annual gold production is about 96 million ounces. A lot of gold, a lot of gold. And if you sold that gold at market prices for 155 years and put every dollar toward our national debt, it would take that long to pay it back. 155 years of all the gold produced in the world, 96 million ounces per year, you could pay that back. But that's a small number compared to the sand. In fact, it's 350,250 times smaller than all the sand in the world. Now, wait a minute. God didn't say, I think about you about as often as you think there are dollars in the national debt. He said, all the sand in the world. He cares about you. He thinks about you. Your eyes, verse 16 of Psalm 139, saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. 
Isaiah puts it this way in another chapter, chapter 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have compa no compassion on the son of her womb? Natural law cries, no way, right? There's no way that's going to happen. Or, and, and mother love redoubles the emphasis. Is that possible? Is it possible for a woman to forget her own son, her nursing child? God says, even these may forget. <laughs> but I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Again, he writes in chapter 43, Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So in a sense, Isaiah asks us, why would you define God by your circumstance? Is God really only good and powerful when you feel blessed by him? In the final verse that we're looking at today in chapter 40, God brings us all the way back through Isaiah to these words. Have you not known, verse 28, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. In other words, in relation to time, God has no beginning and end. He's the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. In relationship to his world, God is the one who made it. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, in relationship to the process of living, God never runs out of energy and his understanding is unsearchable. It's really all about God. It's really all about him. The whole world revolves on the axis of God's power and authority. No one lifts his hand or, or takes a breath apart from him. That's the verses we looked at last week. But, get this, while it's all about God, God is, in one sense, all about his people. All the energy of a divine power, all the certainty of a divine love are ours in Jesus. So if we could sum all of the verses that we've talked about in Isaiah 40, to in two words, what would they be? I'm going to suggest we could summarize all of Isaiah 40 to this point in two words. Almighty Emmanuel. Almighty Emmanuel. The God who is with us, who is the God of the universe. The God who knows my smallest needs and who understands my greatest problems. This God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Hebrews chapter 1 captures all of this in these few words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by Emmanuel, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He, Jesus, is the exact imprint of his nature. He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And look at how he shows himself. He himself has suffered when tempted. So he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is our God. This is our God. The king of creation, 
the ruler of the universe, the God who made everything, the God who made you, and who knows your smallest need and cares about your biggest problems. All the power of Almighty God on on your behalf. All the power of Almighty God on our behalf. Heavenly Father, so great a God is inconceivable. So near a God is unthinkable. But to have so great a God who is so near is a reality beyond our highest imaginations. It's a hope in dark times. It's a confidence in uncertain times. It's a reality. It's a reality for us. We cling to you, O God, God of the universe, Emmanuel, almighty Emmanuel, and we give you praise for being